0: 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 that we've been on for a while is the most concentrated and explicit New Testament teaching about money and giving and, and how money and giving work in the New Covenant. And it's a very, very interesting. As uh, I'd say one of our discoveries after all of these weeks of study is that it's very rare that any Christian group ever follows the biblical pattern when it comes to money and giving. It's a rarity. In fact, it's almost a rare exception. Now, what, are, what have we learned so far? One of the things we've learned is that the one key theological word that's used the most often in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is the word grace, charis, grace. So the first thing you need to know about money is that God operates by grace not law or obligation. And God is, does a work of grace in the hearts and minds of people who believe the gospel. And when those people have received that work of grace, they become generous to people in need around them, especially other Christians, and in support of the gospel. And they do that spontaneously. Paul said the Macedonian Christians, even in their dire circumstances, begged Paul for the grace that they might graciously participate in his collection for the needy saints in Judea. And Paul emphasized several times in this section, we are on verse 14. So we've studied the first 13 verses and he's emphasized several times that this is not something that people do under compulsion. Okay. now with that introduction, I want to pray and let's. Begin our discussion on verse 11. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that you've shown us. We are very aware that we're not worthy of any of the benefits that we ever receive, but you are so gracious to us. And Lord, we thank you for the gospel and the gospel of grace. We thank you for yesterday's seminar and just the wonderful benefit that was to us. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather under the means of grace on Sunday morning to encourage one another and to discuss our mutual salvation. We pray for the scattered flock around the world that listen on the Internet. We pray that you help them find fellowship, help them find the means of grace. And Lord, may you bless them as they become part of this from afar, and we pray for their well-being. And we commit this day to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, verse 11. To Corinthians 8, verse 11 says, at this present time... Oh, we're kind of, let me reset this because we get different people here every Sunday. Um, this verse is really connected with verse 13. Paul is taking up this offering. He wants the Corinthians to participate according to their ability, not beyond their ability. ability. And they had begun to do this by expressing a desire before... And in the meantime, we'd had that severe letter, and Paul was concerned that the Corinthians were going to just turn against him and not receive his rebuke. But Titus came back with the report that they indeed had listened to his severe letter and had repented, at least most of them, and that Paul was back in good standing with the Corinthians. And so now Titus is going to go and complete this offering that they had begun Before all of these events had happened. So, verse 13 says, For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality at this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance may also become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. Now, this, uh, admittedly, there are some issues here that are a little bit hard to understand, and I looked this up in the Greek and looked at various scholars, what they've said about this passage. And I pointed out last week that that by way of in the Greek is the preposition ek, which means out of. So we concluded that likely this is not Paul trying to create some sort of a socialism so that everybody's money is the same, enforce socialism. That's not what this is about. So somehow out of their abundance not to create a different situation, but out of their abundance, there at this present time, that word, as I mentioned last week, is kairos, which is qualitative time, at this crucial moment. Now, the question is, when the New Testament talks about this present time and uses the term kairos, sometimes it means the end of the age. In other words, the whole period from Pentecost when uh, Peter announced the last days until the return of Christ is considered the eschatological crucial moment of salvation. Why, why so? Because during this whole era is the day of salvation. Okay, we are living in the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation Christ, I'm going to talk about this in my sermon because we're going to talk about judgment now and future, but there comes a, the day of the Lord, which becomes the day of God's wrath poured out, and we better respond during the crucial day to the offer of salvation. Okay, so kairos could mean that. This is the crucial moment. This is the day of grace. This is the day of the gospel where we need to respond. Or it's also possible that it has, the, in Paul's mind, there is a local situation that's a crucial moment that's pertaining only to them and their situation at that time. And again, this is I'll read a couple of scholars on this. That's possible too. It could be either one.
1: I had a question on... You're starting at verse 11, right? Today. No,
0: excuse me, at 14. I said it wrong.
1: 14.
0: But if you want to talk about 11... I was
1: actually talking about 13 and 14.
0: Okay. What, what
1: this seems to be fighting as well as this vow of poverty or vow of, of uh, piousness by making myself poor because he says it's not for the ease of others and for your affliction. So the goal isn't to impoverish yourself. Right. The goal is just to help people because you can. Yeah. The so Christians
0: that, give to one another, and that's a sign of the gospel at work. And, and to say that if you do this to
1: impoverish yourself, to make somebody... I, I mean, that that's not a noble thing here. He's actually fighting against that concept in the same verse.
0: Yeah, you're right, Keith. We talk, in verse 12 it says Don't, uh, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So the New Testament's not take, talking about faith pledges. It's not talking about sacrificing everything you have. It's talking about if you are uh, financially blessed at the present time, And you're a Christian, you help those who are in need around you. That's just what Christians do because they're generous. All right? And the vow of poverty is a good point. I've been, I mentioned this, I'm doing a good selling. I should get a cut from MacArthur. I really should. I deserve a cut. (laughs) I don't know how many CDs he sold because I've been pushing this. But he has an eight-part CD collection on Catholicism. And I've I listened to it almost twice through. And it absolutely is excellent. It's, it's, if, if, you don't, if you don't listen to that, you really don't get what the issues are with Catholicism. But the vow of poverty is one of the things that they came up with. And I think there's this pietistic streak that, that's there, and not just in Catholicism, but in Protestantism as well. There's this idea that if I do some... Uh, pious act beyond what any, even the Scripture asked me to do, then I put myself in a higher category, and I'm a much better Christian than ordinary Christians. And so this, this goes way back into the early centuries of the church with deception that came into the church. One of the deceptions was that marriage was a lesser thing. So we come up with this oath of celibacy. Okay? And, uh, and interestingly, what... Um, Paul calls a doctrine of demons forbidding marriage becomes a higher act of piety to take this oath, okay? And then there's an oath of poverty because because if you look at the teachings, you can misinterpret what Jesus is saying. I'm preaching through Luke Acts, and Luke Acts has does have a whole lot of material about reversal, and many times in Luke the rich end up being the ones that won't listen to God. You got the rich young ruler, you got the rich man who goes. Uh, to Hades. But Luke is not teaching that you become pious by being poor or you're wicked because you're rich. He's teaching that we all need the gospel. And it's hard for the rich man to see his need, but he still needs it. And as I pointed out before, to prove that Luke doesn't have some sort of economic bias at the heart of his theology, we I pointed out that one of the Persons who's extolled in Luke as an example of salvation is the Queen of Sheba. And the Queen of Sheba came and saw and believed, and uh, in Luke she's an example of a righteous Gentile, and and more righteous than the leaders of Israel who wouldn't listen to God. Okay, so if Luke just thought anybody rich was thereby evil, then how how does Queen of Sheba become an example of of somebody who's faithful to God? and who believes when they saw. And, of course, Luke's point was that Jesus, Jesus is greater than the, uh, Solomon, and he's come, and, and the people in Israel don't think there's anything worth listening to. And that's the point. Okay, now, let's go back here. This present time, uh, let's finish this verse, okay? This present time, our, your abundance, the Corinthians were better off, than the people in Judea, being a supply for their need so that their abundance may be a supply for your need. Now the question is, what is their abundance? And there's two possibilities here. One is elsewhere, Paul talks about the indebtedness that the Gentile churches had to the people in Judea because the gospel originated there and originated with the Jews. And salvation, if you look at the Acts, you got... Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the outermost parts of the world. And so, he may be talking about their abundance having to do with they've had the gospel longer, and the gospel came from the Jews, and these are Jewish Christians. Or, he may be anticipating that at some future date, there may be a different situation. It could be that at some future date, the churches in Asia, or in, uh, Achaia and Macedonia would become even more impoverished, and the ones in Judea maybe have an abundance, and they'd, uh, there'd be some reciprocity, and they would help them. Either one is a possible interpretation of this. Notice the chiastic structure. You're there, there you, you're. That's, that's a common structure in the Greek. You have A, B, B, A. And that's the way this is laid out. Now, Okay, okay, I'm going to quote here on page 414, of Barnett's commentary. What does Paul mean by this principle of equality? Does he anticipate that if the economic circumstances were reversed, the Jerusalemites would reciprocally relieve the Corinthians' need, as perhaps the next verse implies, or will the Corinthians' benefit be in the form of the Jerusalemites loving? And prayerful fellowship with the Corinthians, as nine fourteen implies. The most likely answer is that Paul teaches that um, uh, the second one will definitely occur, and the first one could occur if the cir- circumstances arose. So there's a possibility that there, there's this fellowship. And if, remember, I think I have a, somewhere I have a quote about that. Remember that underlying this entire mission uh, that Paul is undertaking, and it's amazing how much. And the New Testament talks about Paul's mission to take up this offering. If you look at Acts, if you look at 1 Corinthians, you look at 2 Corinthians, and he mentions it so often that this is really important to him. And it wasn't just important because there were some poor people in Jerusalem. It was important for the sake of the gospel. And if there's one thing that I know that Paul is very concerned about, it was that the church would be divided and there would be a Jewish church and a Gentile church going two different directions. And Paul did not want that to happen. Absolutely did not want that to happen. And that's why he anathematized the Galatians. He anathematized them because they were threatening the gospel itself by adding Jewish law to the gospel. And the Gentiles would be excluded. So Paul really anathematized anything that would create that kind of a thing. Because the gospel is what creates unity. The gospel itself is what creates unity. So the offering wasn't just an economic issue. It was an issue that the gospel that the Gentiles had received because the Jewish apostles had gone to them was something that they were thankful for, and they wanted to show their unity with the Judean church that was Jewish by sending this offering. When somebody um, spontaneously sends you an offering... It's it just you know that you weren 't expecting doesn 't that what does that say to you? Most people have had that happen where somebody somebody gives you money and you 're just totally unexpected. Well, it makes you feel that that somebody loves you and cares about you and, and that they think that what happens to you is important, and so that 's exactly what's going on with the church. I had an interest talking about this unity. Robert and I had an interesting conversation that reminded me of two conversations i 've had the one that Robert told the story Robert told. And then one I had on the phone. Okay, Do you want to tell your own story? <laughs>
2: well, we were uh, at the U of M last night, and we happened to be talking to a couple of Mormons. Well, there was some guys from Bethlehem Baptist that were driving by and saw that and thought we were all on the page of the Mormons. So they were going to come by and witness to us. Well, when we, <laughs>
3: when,
2: when we started to talk to them, we clarified and said, "No, we were witnessing to the Mormons." And so to be clear, I said. I just want you to know the gospel that we're preaching, and so I shared the gospel with these guys from Bethlehem, and they rejoiced. They they just almost started to weep, you know, and like this is so great to hear. Yeah. So it was was real unity.
0: That's what unity is about. Okay, it isn't about creating an ecumenical movement and trying to get everybody to sign the documents, you know, that you can put on the internet, you know, evangelicals and Catholics together, that kind of foolishness. It's not about that. It's about the gospel. And when you have the gospel, you have unity. I don't want to embarrass you, Justin, but last night we had a wonderful uh, supper afterwards, after he shared and he shared the gospel yesterday, and we began to talk theology. And we found out we were really on the same page in the gospel. And we we didn't know Justin until yesterday, okay? But the unity is already there because it wasn't created by organizations. It was created by the Holy Spirit who made us one in Christ. And by the fact that we have the gospel at the center and not all these little factions. Now, a faction is something that happens because people start believing doctrines that you can't derive from Scripture. All right. Now, the seminar was about a faction. That's a, The word of faith is a faction. And one person, in fact, my brother Wayne said that he had a guy that he's working with who was in that, and if Wayne tried to talk to him about the gospel or the Bible or anything, he just put his hands over his ear. No, 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 no. They cannot have any fellowship with anybody who doesn't believe their ideas. Now, that destroys unity. Now, why? Because you can't get their ideas from the Bible. and, And you're not heading on the same, you're not on the same trajectory. So, Christians that do have the right gospel may have points of disagreement. All right, but we have the same reference and we're on a trajectory of unity and we're not going off. But once you're in the faction, now the other story, and I'll go to Keith. The other story, I heard the opposite thing. Okay, I heard this story that Robert just told how these people went to witness to them thinking they were Mormons and then when they preached the gospel to the guys who were going to preach to them, they rejoiced (laughs) together in the gospel. Okay, now I got a call from a person who said, I think I mentioned this last week, who said, that her sister is in the new apostolic reformation and so they got apostles and prophets and they got their own unique revelations and all this stuff and this lady they're both supposedly both Christians but she was saying she said to me don't talk to me about the bible don't talk to me about gospel don't i don't want to hear any of this stuff don't talk to me about doctrine that's what the lady in the new apostolic reformation said to this Christian why because it's a faction that is a faction and they can only get along with each other they can't rejoice with some other christian in the gospel now that these things that have happened here just recently <laughs> illustrate what unity really is the first thing that has to start with is the gospel itself and if you preach the gospel to a christian and they get mad at you they're either not saved or they're in a factious her- heresy that who knows whether they're saved or not. Case in point. Okay, go ahead. I mean, I
1: actually, that's where I was going. With there's that a, video? There's this video yeah. that yeah. a guy sent up that uh, there supposedly was a revival going on in Lakeland, Florida. No, this one was in California, I think, oh, was California, it? California, but is that, that, it's the, the same, same guy. guy. was that Bentley, a, yeah. Todd yeah. Bentley, who was supposedly doing these miracle uh, revivals. And there's a group of Christians that... And so everybody's lined up because you want to get a good seat so you can get smacked by this Bentley. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, did. If you're going to get smacked, you want to be in the front row.
1: <laughs> so uh, there's these other group of Christians that were just preaching the gospel to the group standing in line. And the, they were getting heckled. They were getting very, very heckled. And people were being very anti and vehement. How dare you do this? So here you have a supposed revival of Christians that are opposed to the Gospel and are opposed to people preaching the Gospel and be hostile to the people that are preaching to them. It was just so shocking to I see that on the video. Was, yeah.
0: I saw that video too. and It is absolutely shocking that, they're, that, they, that they heckle. Go, they want to go to a revival but they don't want anybody to preach the Gospel to them. <laughs> now what does that say? They're, they're in a factious, uh, factious belief system that excludes fellowship based on the gospel itself. And before I get to Jeremy, I I want to apply that to what we're studying. Paul was taking up this offering to make that not happen. They didn't want the Jewish Christians in Judea to be a faction and the Gentile Christians in Achaia or Macedonia to be a faction. They really don't want anything to do with each other. That's really a poison to the gospel. The gospel should unify us. And we should rejoice. And Paul, if Paul can rejoice when the gospel is preached by people that don't have his best interest in mind, In Philippians, when we can rejoice, yes.
3: Well, you can look at that in Second Thessalonians 2, verse 10. And in every sort of evil that deceives those that are perishing, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Yeah. When, like, we've done some evangelical ministry on the streets, and when you run into someone who knows Christ knows the gospel and loves it, you just rejoice. And there's other people who claim to even be born again, claim to have these relationships, and they don't get mad. They don't love the truth. They get mad when they yeah. hear the gospel. Yeah. So it really makes you question if they really yeah. have
0: that love of the truth. Yeah. That's a good point. And so there's a little test for all of us. Are we when we see someone preaching the true gospel, are we able to rejoice even if there's some things about them that isn't exactly the way we would want to be. I, I, I hope that I can. In fact, I know I can because I've seen it happen. I've been places where I didn't expect to hear the gospel, like at a funeral in a mainline church, and I do hear it. I have to rejoice. <laughs> okay? I have to rejoice. I, I didn't expect it, but I heard the gospel, and how wonderful is that? Yes.
3: What really changed my whole theology is when I began to realize how narrow the gate is. And how wide destruction is. The gospel is very offensive, and it's very narrow, and few find it. That's what the Bible says. And when I realized that Jesus spent more time turning people away than receiving people, it just blew my whole perception of what Christianity is. Wow.
0: Wow. Well, anybody that's gone through that same narrow gate will rejoice to find somebody else there. (laughs) Yes. Um,
2: Verse 14 seems, um, not, doesn't seem, it's, it's. is an extension of verse 10. He's telling them that the present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance may also be, become a supply for your need. So he's telling them that this is to their advantage. One. Secondly, it's also a picture of the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And in, in, over here at, in Matthew 7, 12, he says, in everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you for this is the law and the prophets.
0: Okay, amen. Let me quote another uh, scholar by the name of Garland. And he says this in Romans 15:25 to 31, Paul makes it clear that the gospel is a gift that creates an obligation of gratitude that should be shown by the return of material gifts. Dick. <laughs> That's payback for your comment about me not being able to pronounce a word. Romans 15, to 31. <laughs> okay, let's just read that and um, see what he's talking about here. And then I'll, I'll continue on. Paul specifically refers to the Macedonians and Achaeans as spiritual debtors to those in Jerusalem. He explains, quote, For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with their material blessings. Okay, so let's see what it says.
3: Okay, you're talking 15... 20, 25 to 31. 25 to 31. But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual blessings, they are indebted to minister to them in material things. Therefore... When I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs I will go on by way of you to Spain I know that when I come to you I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ Now I urge you brethren by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to to strive together with me in your prayers to God for them that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints.
0: Okay. And then now, why is it important that my service Jerusalem prove acceptable? Well, he's hoping that the Jewish recipients of the or Jewish Christians who receive the gift will be gracious and see it for what it is, a sign of the unity of the gospel. Okay. Now, I wanted to read this Garland because he pointed out some ways that people thought in the ancient world that might lie behind Paul's Protocol here, as he says, quoting Garland again. He also shows sensitivity to the social rules of the time by emphasizing future rep- rep- reciprocity. The protocol of gift giving in this culture took for granted that whenever there was a disparity in the exchange of gifts, the one who all gave the other gained status as a superior, while the one other moved down a rung in the ladder. Okay, and so Paul is trying to mitigate that, that social thinking, okay? So he didn't want them to feel that they are gaining superiority or that anybody was going up and down the ladder, depending on who gave more. If, that's, if this is correct, and I, I have heard of that in the ancient Near East, of being, being like that, the one who gives the most gains status. Okay, that explains why Paul stresses that the Corinthians' plenty now will supply the needs of the saints, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. No one outgave the other and attained higher status over the other. I think it's an interesting point that we should take into consideration. He stresses that God rewards those who are generous with the poor. This theological affirmation changes entirely. The dynamics behind gift exchange with this expectation of reciprocity and brings it more in line with the gospel. The implication is that the bond between them is triangular because God repays those who are generous to the poor, 2 Corinthians 9, 6-11. He also spiritualizes their reciprocity. If, if the unlikely possibility ever comes to pass that their fortune should be reversed, the Jerusalem Christians will share material gifts with the Corinthians, but immediately they will offer a prayers of thanksgiving and intercession for them, 2 Corinthians 9, 12 through 14. So I think that explains the difficult passage very well. Okay, does that make sense? Yes.
1: I just have a question. Is this the same trip that Paul gets thrown into prison on? Or is it not explicit? I think it
0: ended up being. Because he his way He, to he wanted to go to Spain. We've used this in our teaching about personal words from God. All right. That in other words, I don't believe in any new revelations. And it's interesting that even the apostle didn't have revelations from God about everything that was going to happen. In fact, he thought he was going to go to Spain, and he wasn't sure what was going to happen when he went to Jerusalem. And he ended up being arrested, which was prophesied by. He thought he was going to get.
1: He thought he was going to have problems in Jerusalem, but, but this is the same journey, right? Yeah. He, he he delivered his stuff, then he had took those vows to go to the temple just because he wanted to did not to uh, offend the Jews unneedlessly, yeah. and then he ends up getting thrown into prison and preaching to Nero ultimately.
0: Exactly, exactly. A very very interesting travel log that you have to kind of piece together from various spots to end up with the whole story. And even in that, we have a few blanks, and we're not quite sure where where it ends up going. Well, let's go on to verse 15. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. Now, this is a citation from the Septuagint of Exodus 16 and verse 18. And that passage was about manna. Yeah, this is a good opportunity to look at a little bit of Jewish biblical interpretation. In the Exodus story, the manna ended up meeting everybody's needs perfectly. You couldn't store a whole great big storehouse full of it because what would happen? It'd get rotten. Okay, so you didn't build storehouses for manna. And so the manna was a, became proverbial for God's provision and Jesus quoted, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So as they would go out and see God's provision day by day, it really kind of even lies behind the idea of the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. And it means that Christians are people who know that God takes care of them, and they don't have to have a huge storehouse. Remember the, the parable of the rich fool who's going to never have to worry again? We, we preached on. So Christians know that God's going to take care of them, and if they don't have some massive storehouse, it really doesn't matter. Okay? And so the manna story here become illustrative of how Christians take care of each other here under the new covenant. That rather than having the Corinthians, if it was possible for them to hoard everything they could have, in case at some point they might want to use their hoard, They're better off to help the needy Judean Christians now and know that God's going to take care of them by giving and receiving to one another. That's the application Paul makes of the manna narrative. And basic idea, again, this is not, he said this is not under obligation. We're not asking you to give what you don't have. Uh, He's avoiding, very tactfully, avoiding, wrong implications that could come from this, but still encouraging Christians to be generous and to give. That, that's a wonderful thing. And would to God, if the church, Protestant included, if the church in church history had just taken to heart 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and say, here's our marching orders about money, we would have a lot of mischief that never happened. We wouldn't have indulgence assault. We wouldn't have the health and wealth gospel. <laughs> we wouldn't have, uh, uh, prelates and bishops and cardinals, you know, living in luxurious palaces that on the taking the money away from the, the poor to do it, selling people, telling people they can buy their relatives out of purgatory, telling people they give money to a guy, this multi millionaire preacher, that then that, that's how God is going to bless them. They should give their money to the wealthy preacher. All of this would go away if we only followed what it says. You know, the older I get, the more it seems simple. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) And and the real simple version is, just do what the Bible says. And do it with the attitude that the Bible says, faith, grace. And you live a life, and it's going to be a life that there may be all kinds of difficulties and problems, but the church isn't going to be the cause of them. The church is going to mitigate the problems we all have, not exasperate them. Doesn't it seem simple? Scripture alone, it's just becoming more and more um, indelibly imprinted on my heart and mind that every, and I know I know that it's absolutely true that I don't understand everything in the Bible the way I should. I'm, I'm sure that's true. But I'm also Sure, that whatever it is I don't understand would help me a lot more if I did. <laughs> do you understand it? So that? So that way you became a lifetime learner. It's, it's not that saying, well, I have all the truth, so I, everybody ought to listen to what I say about it. No, but I do know that we stay within the boundaries that God's given us in Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, that always we have a better outcome. You, we absolutely avoid every kind of pitfall. Because the Lord knew the pitfalls. In fact, as I am preaching through Luke 12, remember last week in my PowerPoint, I had a summary of warnings to disciples. I don't know if my memory is going to work well enough. Hypocrisy, fear of man, um, failure to confess, greed. Remember all those dangers? Okay? Uh, lack of vigilance. I think I almost got the list. What's that? Temptation. Okay. Well, if you look at the list in Luke 12, which is warnings to disciples about things that could shoot down their faith, and you read church history, you have to come to the conclusion that everything Jesus warned against was done. And you have to come to the conclusion that his warning was valid. Because when those things were done, the greed, the hypocrisy, the fear of man, it destroys the church and its gospel. Yes.
2: Yeah, along with that, uh, this is something that was brought up yesterday at the conference uh, with Justin. He brought up 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. It says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, and none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one another. Um, one against the other.
0: Right. When you go beyond what's written, you end up in a faction. And that was one of the Corinthians' errors. They were, they were factious. Is that how you pronounce that? while, <laughs> 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 like, get <it's> something right. <laughs> All right. Okay, I was going to quote Garland some more. Why does Paul need to ask the Romans to pray for the poor? He's talking about that passage that Dick read pray for that, the poor people will find it acceptable. The answer is to be found in a long history of conflict over the acceptance of uncircumcised Gentile Christians by the more traditional law-observant Jewish Christians. The problem was that this was Gentile money. If the Jewish Christians accept this tangible sign of love and indebtedness from Gentile Christians, then they have, in effect, accepted them as their brothers in Christ and fellow heirs of the promises. The collection shows that Christian faith overcomes the deepest racial barriers that formerly separated Jews and Gentiles. It does. It does. It's, and there isn't anything. There isn't anything we could ever have been, whether it's radical Muslim, or Orthodox Jew, or Hindu, or Catholic, or. There isn't anything that we could ever have been that cannot be overcome by the gospel. And, having been overcome, we have a unity that you could never have had. Have you heard some of the people that Jan's had? your conference this Saturday, by the way. Like that, Walid. Walid, Yeah. There's a brother in Christ who used to be radical, enemy of us. The gospel does that. Absolutely, the gospel does it. And that's why anything less than gospel preaching, and then you talk about unity, it's like, well, I can't think of an appropriate analogy that I can say in Sunday school. I think of ones my dad used on the farm, but we're not going there. (laughs) It's like something that doesn't work very well. (laughs) All right. All right. This concern, says Garland, to show the solidarity between Jew and Greek in Christ is the primary motivation behind the collection. I believe that. The primary motivation, because frankly, from what we can see, the Christians in Thessalonica were just as bad off as the ones in Judea. And the reason that the ones in Thessalonica and Judea were in such horrible condition was caused by persecution. The severe persecution that they were under, not only harmed them socially, but it harmed them economically. In many cases, they couldn't even have a job because the trade guild they used to belong to, in the case of the Greeks, was dedicated to wicked religious practices. And in the case of the Jewish Christians, they were so ostracized by their family and friends that were Jewish, they, they lost a lot of economic status, perhaps family inheritance. You can, you can, becoming a Christian can cost you a lot of money. Absolutely, I've heard stories from people who were written out of the family inheritance out of a wealthy family because they become a Christian.
3: You just hit it on the nose. That's what happened, as well as John Stott in our contemporary day. Came from a wealthy family, turned to Christ, family rejected him, lost his means of um, affluence, and really became poor. But not because he sought to be poor to say, yeah. look at me, I'm more righteous. Yeah.
0: We agree with that. Absolutely. Yeah. And... Um, yeah like i've told people when i when I wrote that article about I think about many means of grace or one of them about the spiritual disciplines. I think I wrote an article about that how silly they were that you try to create something to make yourself spiritual when we when we don 't even know what we need okay so some people to become spiritual take an oath of poverty, and I pointed out, how do you know that you need poverty to be spiritual you 're not in charge of your own development, God is, and I said. And if God knows you need to be poor to be spiritual, he can take care of that. <laughs> 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 he knows what we need. And I totally, Justin made a great point yesterday. If what if what we need, God, there isn't any issue with God's ability to do things. Okay? So if, he, if there's something we think we need that he doesn't do, then we don't need it. That's it. All right. <laughs> So, yep, poverty is easy to do. <laughs> but Lord, don't you know I need wealth? <laughs> no, uh, maybe not. Paul wants to do more than send them relief. He wants to establish unity between the Jewish Christian Jerusalem church and the Gentile church as he founded. For he yearns for all Christians to understand that since they belong to Christ, we all belong together. The collection is part of his ministry of reconciliation to bring an end to the hostility between Jew and Gentile and break down the dividing walls of hostility. I totally agree with that, that that was the motive more than any other thing for why so much emphasis on this collection throughout Acts, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and so on, because... The unity of the church in the gospel was at stake. Now, uh, one more comment on this unity issue. As was mentioned yesterday at the seminar, some of us who are very, uh, think that sound doctrine is very important and we're willing to correct false doctrine when it comes into the church are accused of destroying Christian unity. How are we going to have unity if you correct false doctrine? And believing that shows a fundamental lack of understanding of the gospel. And it shows a fundamental lack of understanding of Christian unity. There is nothing that creates unity for Christians like the gospel and all the truths connected with it. And the more we are finding the truth together from the scriptures, the more unified we are. And the threat to unity is always heresy, as Justin quoted from Romans 15, right? Or 16. Yeah, Romans 16, quoted after Romans 16. So this is not to be against unity, it's to be for unity. To be for the Gospels is to be for unity. To be for sound doctrine is to be for unity. Because anywhere you go in the world, if you find people with the Gospel and sound doctrine, you have unity with them the first minute you meet them. That's how fast it happens. I just got a call from a guy in South Africa Friday. We talked for probably a half hour on the phone. We have unity, just like that. And, and I've, I've, this guy I have heard from before. And he says, send me, uh, send me CDs full of MP3s of your sermons and Bible teaches, anything you got. Send it to me, and I'll put it on the Internet and stream it all over South Africa. So that's what we're going to do. <laughs> That's that's a lot easier than getting an airplane ticket and for going all over. Okay. Uh, yes. <laughs>
1: well, I was just at a – I visited a business this week. It kind of was, it was disturbing, and I was going kind to of throw it out here for a different way for Unity kind of okay. looking at it. But you get into the business. It's a very, very successful business. The owner is 40 and very wealthy, uh, Inc. 500 kind of thing, uh, and – in his main office, you have the Prayer of Jabez on the reception. Oh, it worked. And it's kind of coming along. You have the Prayer of Jabez there, and you had the Christian business directory so that there you have a unity because I can put out a Christian yellow pages and put my ad in, and all the Christians will come buy stuff from me. And it's a, it's a, a twist on what we're talking about because instead of generosity, I'm making a buck at being a Christian. And you don't know. There's no. It's not a unity on the gospel. It's a unity on my yellow pages, uh, on the yellow pages ad. And it was, it was very consistent along the whole lobby. Then they had a whole shelf of recommended books by the, by the owner, and it was all the body prayer and the, all the books that your book is uh, coming out. The emergent. it's all that emergent stuff. It was, it was, it was <laughs> fighting. It was the, the whole context was pushing a unity of spirituality. And a unity of the name Christian but fighting against the unity of the truth that have been doctrinally based so if you would talk to him I would talk to the owner I'm hoping I will probably get a chance I don't think it'll be um, I didn't I didn't meet him this time but the immersion concept has a unity on spirituality avoiding the, the doctrine so that we don't want right. to have doctrine that exactly. that could possibly show up that some of us believe one
0: thing and others believe another. Yeah, that's a good point. That, that sort of unity that's not based on the gospel can be a lot bigger unity because there's no narrow gate. Alright? And, and so you're based on something else. But, if the church does that, it ends up creating hypocrisy. Let me tell you a real life story about that from my childhood. I grew up in Northwest Iowa, where the majority of the people are Dutch. And the people that are pure Dutch were almost all Dutch Reformed of one sort or another. There was Christian Reform, First Reformed, Netherlands Reformed, Bethel Reform. That's just off the top of my head in our town. Now, there are various kinds of Dutch reform, But the strictest ones were ones that were able to enforce the church on everybody in their community. And no children dared depart from the church. No families dared depart from the church. Everybody's there, and it was enforced by this consistory that would come around and browbeat them every year if, if they were doing anything wrong. And everybody knew what everybody was doing, so they found out if somebody was going to the bar in the other county or something, then they'd come in and browbeat them. Wow, oh, we heard what you did. And you didn't give enough money, and you didn't do this, you didn't do it. So they were... These people were forced into this church because of their ethnicity. not because of their, I would say the church has the gospel, okay? I'm not saying they don't have the gospel, but they had everybody in there and you had no choice. And if you grew up in that church and you owned a car dealership and you didn't attend church like you're supposed to, you would never sell a car. That's what you're talking about, all right? What did that create? It, it poisoned my mind against Reformed theology for, for all the way until I was almost 40 years old. Because I, in my mind, Reformed is synonymous with hypocrite. Because that church was filled up with unregenerate people. And they had no choice but be there. But they didn't have a work of grace in their hearts because God doesn't save everybody. Okay? And they didn't have a mechanism where the church is primarily the redeemed. And if people don't want to obey the gospel, they go their way, they go their way. No, they had a mechanism to get you in there whether you wanted to believe the gospel or not. And you better act like you're a Christian. And they had real strict Sabbath rules after the manner of the Old Testament Sabbath. And all of us, what it did for us that grew up not in that church was all the people we knew that are our age in that church who were so pious on Sunday, we knew they were just as bad as sinners, as, in fact, worse in some cases than we were, although we were bad enough. okay. <laughs> and I thought, hypocrite, hypocrite, hypocrite. That's what that religion is. I'm not going to believe them. But uh, in 1986, I decided to preach to Romans. I ordered a commentary from Christian books on Romans by a man by the name of William Hendrickson. I got the book, looked at the back cover, and it said that he'd been in some Dort college or whatever, Dutch reform. I go, oh no, 25 bucks? What a waste. Now I have to ship it back? That's a pain. I hadn't even read it. And I, then I thought, well, you know, maybe you know something about Romans. I'll read it. And this guy loved the Lord, had the gospel, and his commentary on Romans is excellent, and it helped change my thinking. So my prejudice wasn't a good thing to have. I didn't even want to hear what they believed because I didn't like what I saw. Now, but there is a lesson in that. I think we should bring our kids to church and train them in the ways of the Lord. And and the Bible is a solid light and mitigating influence on society, on, on, on kids, on anybody that hears it. But I don't think we want to create unity, like Keith was saying, around economics. I don't think we want to create unity around ethnicity. We're Dutch. So the ethnicity creates the unity. I don't think we want to create unity by church law, browbeating people into doing what we think they ought to do, even if they have no inclination to do it, and they actually show no signs of regeneration. Because that is not the biblical doctrine of of unity. Unity is created by God. It says in Ephesians, endeavor to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Is that not right? I hope I quoted it right. It's in chapter 4. If I'm wrong, somebody correct me. But it says we're to endeavor to preserve the unity of the Spirit. If you're not regenerate, you don't have the Spirit, you can't have the unity of the Spirit. So for any means, that's why I'm so deaf against the seeker movement. I just I hate the seeker movement. Why? Because it's trying to create a church filled with the unregenerate on purpose. On purpose. And what fellowship has light with darkness? It says an act that God adds to the church, those who are being saved. You're not added to the church until you're saved, and you don't have the unity of the Spirit. You don't have anything to endeavor to preserve. The way we endeavor to preserve the unity of the Spirit is by gospel proclamation. That those who are willing to sit. Now, does that mean everybody, we can't allow anybody in who's unregenerate? I'm not saying that. In fact, if somebody's willing to come and sit under gospel preaching of their own accord, who may not know the Lord, I would say good. Sit. That's what even Wesley said that. Sit under the means of grace. Who knows when saving grace might come to you? Well, Wesley said a lot of reformed things sometimes. He says, just go sit under the means of grace. And if, and if, you're, if you're uncertain, maybe, Pastor Bob, you're, you're talking very strong here, and I'm not so sure I'm saved. Maybe I better leave. I don't want to mess up the unity of the church. I'm not saying that. If you're not so sure you're saved, sit under the gospel. If you're willing to tolerate it, that's a good sign. <laughs> if you don't get mad and, and run out, sit under the gospel. Saving grace comes. And that's, that's the point. So, what is the lesson? The unity that was important to Paul was the unity that was grounded in the Gospel and nothing else. The Gospel had gone to the Gentiles from Judea, from the Jews. The Jews had the oracles of God. They were indebted to the Jews. And so are we. But but the, the clannishness that I was talking about, I saw it in my town amongst the Dutch. And by the way, by the way i th- I need to say this to be fair because I painted a kind of a negative picture I got to be fair when I was converted and went back to town and started finding out what was really going on. I found some wonderful born again Dutch reform people th- They were the salt and light, and they were there, and they were sprinkled in, and they became some wonderful friends, okay. So I'm not trying to just paint a negative picture. They did have the gospel, and they did have the remnant. They really did know the Lord. I just want to discuss this issue of trying to create a clan in order to have unity. And I I don't think the clan is how you have unity. And that's what Paul was afraid was going to happen in Judea. They'd have a Jewish clan with no room for the Gentile Christians. And so um, I thank God for you... uh, I mentioned this to Justin last night, but um, we were talking about the gospel at supper. And we were talking and I said, you know, because of all the stuff going on in the churches and the, the seeker movement has driven the gospel out of the pulpits of churches all over the Twin Cities, It has orphaned people, false doctrine has orphaned people, all kinds of bad teachings that orphaned people, and some of them ended up coming here. And I said they come through the door People hungry for the truth of the word. And they, they're just so hungry and so thankful. And as I was talking, I looked across the table and there's this Troy. Uh, Troy and I said, Oh, and you're one of them. <laughs> Troy's the recently found out about Justin. And Troy just wants to talk about the Bible, wants to talk about the gospel, wants to learn, and, and so on. That's just an example. He came maybe three years ago. So, I thank God for that, and I think that the gospel will create all the unity that anybody could ever desire. And it's a unity that won't go away. Yes. Uh, Sorry. I
3: had a question, you know, in regards to what we've been talking about in terms of this giving. Uh, You know, there was a passage that came to mind in Matthew, and I don't know if this connects, but if there's an application that can be made out of it, you know, about certain treasures that we should store up and certain treasures that we should not. Uh, have to deal with, but the passage ends up where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Mm -hmm. And how does this connect in the overall picture where their treasure was not just earthly treasures, but also uh, true treasures of Yeah,
0: Matthew and Luke are driving at the heart of what keeps people out of the kingdom of God. Alright? Because in much of history, much of history, becoming a Christian meant being excluded from family, clan, society even, economic opportunities. This, this has happened throughout history. Okay, America is an exception. America is the exception in the sense that we built into our constitution religious tolerance and you can be a Christian and you can't be fired for it. But we're living in a tiny little microcosm compared to all of history. Okay, so if your treasure was your earthly resources, and your ability to not worry because you have a lot of them becoming a christian would be a very unappealing thing all right going through the narrow gate looks really bad if this treasure looks really good because you can see what's already happened to christians all right and so our treasure so so when it talks about these things in Luke especially it talks about economics so much it's not saying that you're going to be saved by being poor but it's saying that the riches could become a millstone to you to keep you from the gospel. I don't know if this is true, but somebody illustrated this about, they they claimed anyhow, I don't know if it's true, and I hate using second person stuff, but this one I've heard, and somebody maybe knows. They say you can catch a monkey by putting something he wants into a a coconut or something, and then he'll reach in there and grab it, but with it it in his mitt, he can't get it back out again, and he'll just sit there stuck because he don't want to give it up. I don't know if it's true. (laughs) I've heard it before. (laughs) I've heard it before. But that sort of illustrates what Jesus' point is, that if you've got to grab that treasure, that treasure has you. And you can't get away from it. And the call of the gospel may come to your ears, but you're thinking, the treasure is too important to me. And that's the whole uh, point of the uh, story of the rich young ruler. Yes?
3: I was just going to bring that up when Jesus said to the rich man uh, who walked away from
1: him after... Jesus said, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And Jesus said to his disciples, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a
3: needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Yeah.
0: But with God, then they, then they said, well, who can be saved? And, and, and Jesus said, with men it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. God can save the rich man. So thank you, dear, dear brothers and sisters. I, I so enjoy opening the Bible together and talking about our mutual salvation. We'll see you upstairs at 10.30.